This is In Sickness. I'm Angeliki. I'm a doctoral student at the University of Oxford, and I study the history of disease. And I'm Maya, and I work in public health in developing areas. Welcome back to In Sickness. Today, we will be talking about smallpox, and specifically smallpox inoculation and vaccination. This is like regularly scheduled programming back to the old format, which I legitimately have forgot. <laughs> okay. Smallpox. I'm going to tell you about smallpox. So smallpox is caused by the variola virus or VARV. Technically, <laughs> there is variola virus major and variola virus minor. Both cause, cause smallpox. But I am not going to differentiate because talk about so much vaccine science that I really already don't know anything about. that I feel like I should just stick to the critical information. Okay. So quick deviation. Let's talk about pathogens, which I feel like we probably should have done in like our very first episode. A pathogen is an organism that causes you to get sick. There are five types of pathogen. Sometimes two are grouped together and people say that there are four. These five types are a virus, a bacteria, a fungi, a protozoa, or a worm. Protozoa and worm are often just called like parasites and lumped together. Um, so to recap some of the other diseases we've discussed, COVID is a virus, as was Spanish flu. Syphilis is caused by a bacteria, as is cholera, anthrax, TB, and Hansen's disease. And what I learned is that we need to do some more fungi. <laughs> The type of pathogen that smallpox is, is a virus. Anyway, smallpox. It's an interesting disease. And in the grand scheme of things, it seems to be relatively recent. And it also seems to evolve relatively slowly. Um, and we can tell that in part because of how dangerous it is. Because typically diseases sort of emerge over time and change in how lethal they are. It is very interestingly, and also very rarely, only affects humans and not animals. So I suspect Angel's going to talk about cowpox. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's cowpox and smallpox, but specifically smallpox only affects humans. The disease itself is very infectious and lethal, but it only affects sensitive people. So what happens is that an epidemic will start and people will either become immune or get sick and die. And then there won't be a resurgence until a new generation of people who are sensitive or not immune come around. One of the similar diseases that doesn't infect animals and operates in the same way is measles. However, it is less lethal. It's estimated that a population of two to 300,000 people was required for there to be enough sensitive people to start a new round of infection, which is another reason why the disease might be really recent until people started doing agriculture, animal farming. They just weren't really like clustered enough in like big enough groups for there to be like a spread of disease like that. This is also one of the reasons that it can be eradicated because it's only present in humans and it spreads from humans to other humans. So if you can develop immunity through vaccinations, all these other things, it can just go away entirely because there are no reservoirs of the disease. More on that later. Normally here, we would also talk about where it typically happens and who it typically happens to. And then we would launch into a rage-filled rant about race and inequality as you have grown to love and expect from us. But <laughs> we say with hope. <laughs> however, uh, smallpox is actually the only infectious disease that we can actually declare eradicated, which is very exciting. 
The last naturally occurring case was in 1977, which I will talk about. And it was declared eradicated in 1980. And all of this was thanks to a somewhat radical and extremely effective vaccination program. Before it was eradicated, it was a lethal and disfiguring disease. So after initial incubation of up to two weeks, people would start to show these symptoms. There were rashes, sometimes pustular, and there were scabs. You would be feverish and vomiting, and you wouldn't really be able to function. The rash starts as these small spots in your throat and on your tongue. And then once those start to break down, it spreads to cover the skin all over your body. And then as the rash spreads, the fever starts to fade. So people might start feeling a lot better. However, they are not better. The sores then start to fill up with pus. They develop an indentation at the center. And then after about two weeks, the sores scab over. When the scabs all fall off, then you're done and you're not contagious anymore. So overall, not very pleasant. People who did survive it would be covered with scars and indentations or even be mm -hmm. blinded. But when your scabs all fall off, you are no longer infectious, but the scabs are still infectious, which is important for later. Good point. So back when it was a thing, it was super, super infectious, as you point out. Basically, the second you had the first mouth symptoms, you were able to infect other people through, you know, the coughing, sneezing, mucous membranes. You all know the drill by now. Um, and you continued to be infectious until the very last scab came off. Because of the vaccine, it's eradicated. So no one gets it anymore, which means no one gets the vaccine anymore either. Although there are still stockpiles of it in case the disease resurges or is used as an act of bioterrorism. Before smallpox was eliminated, they hadn't developed any kind of treatment or cure at all because it has, which is like truly, truly terrifying because it has a 30% fatality rate, right? Three out of 10 people who get it die from it. And I also mentioned bioterrorism in passing because people are really, really scared of it for that very reason. If people can use the live strain of the vaccine to manufacture more of the disease and spread it, we don't really have immunity at the moment and there isn't any treatment. So what would happen is basically everyone would just immediately have to go and get vaccinated and hope mm -hmm. for the best. Um, and if even one case was detected naturally occurring, it would be a global emergency. Fortunately, however, there are no signs of that happening, which is great. Over to you. Yeah. <laughs> a note on the terror of smallpox because of the mortality rate and also because of how um, disfiguring it is. It is something that is long feared and it seems to be particularly prone to these like rumors of intentional spreading, which is what I study and you'll probably see features of that in what I'm about to talk about. So today I'm going to give you some highlights about what we know of the history of smallpox around the world, but I'll be focusing on treatments, mainly inoculation and the invention of vaccination, uh, with the key figure here being Edward Jenner. So the origins of smallpox are actually unknown. We think it emerged about 10,000 years ago in the agricultural settlements of East Africa. The first archaeological evidence of skin lesions resembling smallpox pustules is present in the mummy of Ramses V, who died in 1156 BC. Smallpox is reported in uh, many Asian cultures, so it's described in 1122 BC in China, uh, and in some Sanskrit texts, the names of which I did not write down, so that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the Antonine Plague 
which happened in AD 108, is thought to be smallpox, and it killed about 7 million people in the Roman Empire, and it's credited with the early stages of the decline of the Roman Empire. Goodness. Yeah. Smallpox is frequently epidemic in Europe in the Middle Ages. It's spread by warfare, so think crusades, trade, and expansion all over Eurasia. And of course, the Columbian Exchange. We've talked about the Columbian Exchange before. So it's um, Columbus and company bringing smallpox over to the Americas <laughs> in 1518, along with the other stuff. So quick recap from the syphilis episode. The Columbian Exchange is the theory that uh, when Christopher Columbus arrived in the Americas, he didn't just bring people with him. He brought all of this biological stuff. So like diseases plant life and then um he brought stuff back to europe from the americas as well do we know i feel like i read somewhere smallpox was not a thing in north america beforehand no it was not it's actually kind of a fraught topic and it's pretty debated but we can't find any evidence of smallpox pre-1518 in the Americas. They did have diseases, which goes against some of the early, earlier ideas, like the, the pristine myth, the Americas, which says that it was a paradise before Europeans arrived, <laughs> and they didn't really have illness on an epidemic scale. Um, but no, they have had epidemics before this time. The first recorded case of smallpox in the Americas is in 1518, and as the story goes, it's a slave that traveled over who was infected, and it spreads like wildfire among Native American communities and supposedly facil facilitates the conquest of Mexico. And I've noted, along with violence, slave trading, and settler colonialism, obviously. Right. So, like, part of a wider system of just shitty stuff happening. <laughs> but still devastating. And there have been some theories as well about why that is, and one of those theories is um, virgin soil epidemic theory, which just means that that like people did not have prior immunity to a disease, and therefore it it was especially devastating. But we don't actually know if that's true. Mm -hmm. So that's just the theory, and that had a lot of currency in um, in the eighties. Which brings me to the name smallpox. So for much of its history, it was simply called pox. Uh, which refers to the pock marks that were characteristic of the disease. It was also referred to as variola, which comes from the uh, the Latin word. I think it's like various, which is like a, a marking on the skin. Mm. It was only called smallpox with the epidemic of syphilis that ravaged Europe in the 16th century. I guess starting in the late 15th century, and they called it smallpox to differentiate between the disease, which was already known, so variola, i.e., smallpox as we would know it today, and the even more terrifying one, which had just arrived, and syphilis, as you'll remember from our episode, is called the Great Pox. Mm -hmm. So smallpox, Great Pox. It was called the Angel of Death. It was known as a Great Leveler, which just means that it was hitting people of all social statuses. Nobody was safe. And another fun name coming from uh, the Native Americans of North America is Rotting Face, which mm. I love. <laughs> Yeah, right. they also called it like the disease of the black robes to refer to the Jesuits. Oh my God, that's hilarious. I know, right? I mean, I guess hilarious um, is a highly debatable word to use, but that's a, a remarkably interesting piece of information. Yeah. Okay, so part of my work is about figuring out why it is that we blame certain people for the diseases that are coming in. 
And so I look at, for example, like the Hurons and their encounter with the Jesuit missionaries who came in to like convert people to Catholicism in the 16, I guess, 1620s, 1630s and onwards. And you see epidemics coming about and these whole discussions being had by Huron elders about whether or not to wipe out the French Jesuit priests because they have brought this disaster upon them. So they're making this link between the new disease and the new arrivals, which is like potentially accurate, or it could have been spread through trade with other tribes who maybe had contact with the French or the Dutch or the English. But like they they really like zoned in on this one tiny group of like, I think there were between like 10 and 20 priests at this time, and decide that this is the source of the problem and it's probably politically expedient to get rid of them that way. But they could also honestly believe that these black robes are magicians, which is is reflected in what they actually call the disease. Anyway, after that nice aside, Mm -hmm. it's also called, in 18th century England, it's called the speckled monster, which I wanted to include because it's fun. I'm sure there are a ton of other names for it. It's it's super widespread. It's very well known. It's widely feared, again, because of the disfiguring aspect, because of the suffering, because of the pain, and because everyone knew someone who had had it. The stat I read for England in the 18th century was that like 400,000 people a year were dying of it. It's, it's really, it's a huge problem. Along with all of the other diseases that people are suffering from. Right. Like, we say this every single time, and it kind of sounds like there should be nobody left. It's just amazing humanity survived it all, honestly. honestly. So common treatments for smallpox were cooling, fresh air, open windows, the color red, which I've brought up before. <laughs> like, literally wrapping someone in a red sheet. Perfect. Easy. And variolation, or inoculation which I'm about to talk about, which is not to be confused with vaccination, which is not the same thing. So to preface that, people had noticed that survivors of smallpox were immune to the disease for the rest of their lives. So they would bring in survivors They would bring in survivors to nurse the sick, for example. Um, and in China, the practice of inoculation is recorded in the, in the 16th century as the grinding up of smallpox scabs, which would then be inhaled Wolf of Wall Street style, like literally like with a... (laughs) I like when you go to a museum and there's just a whole wall full of drug paraphernalia. Yeah. You know, when I was working at Kensington Palace, there was this whole like exhibition about um, the women of the royal family, like the Georgian women. And there was this whole case about vaccination and it really did look like drug paraphernalia because you have like the little lancet you have the little like (laughs) the little scoops it and it almost looks like heroin paraphernalia it's really it's really weird and it would have been considered that way as well but I'm getting ahead of myself in Turkey inoculation was commonly done by taking matter from a smallpox patient's pustule uh, making a cut into the person you were trying to inoculate and inserting the matter from the person suffering from smallpox. And then the person being inoculated would then have symptoms for a little while of varying degrees of, of severity. And then they would be either dead or immune. Imagine coming up with that idea. Desperation, I'm sure. <laughs> a number of letters go back to Europe describing these procedures, which appeared to be highly effective, if pretty weird to them. Uh, But it's Lady Mary Wortley Montague who actually gets the procedure accepted in England. So she's an English noblewoman. Her dates are 1689 to 1762. She's brilliant. She's beautiful. She's famous in society circles. She's a free spirit. She's independent. She um, rejected the suitor that her father 
had chosen for her and ran off with a politician. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. In 1715, um, a smallpox epidemic hits her household. Both she and her brother contract it. Her favorite brother dies, and she survives, but she is completely disfigured. So for the rest of her life, she has no eyelashes. She has this, like, red stuff all over her eyes, and she's she's unrecognizable. So two years after that, her husband is given a diplomatic posting in Istanbul slash Constantinople. Please start singing. I was waiting for you to do it. I was going to say, if you're not singing that in your head, you're wrong. Long story short, she observes the process of variolation slash inoculation. She writes home about it in some of the most celebrated like early travel literature of the day. And she orders the, uh, the diplomatic surgeon... Charles Maitland to inoculate her son, who I think was about five at the time. And in 1721, she does the same with her four-year-old daughter back in London, with again Charles Maitland. And then right after that, the same doctor, Charles Maitland, um, gets royal approval to conduct trials on six prisoners of Newgate Prison who are condemned to death. And the deal they get is if they agree to the inoculation and they survive, they're given a pardon and they can go free. So oh, that's no. the deal, and that was a precursor to the inoculation of some of the royal family, mainly two of the kids of Princess Caroline, who becomes Queen Caroline, who's the wife of the future George II. And this is when inoculation becomes kind of mainstream. It's like a top-down kind of thing. If the, royals, if the royal family's doing it, then it becomes a little bit more acceptable because, obviously, mm-hmm. divine right of kings... The king is wrong, you can't say that, that's treason, etc. This is also exactly when the backlash begins against inoculation. And in summer 1722, the Reverend Edmund Massey delivers a uh, a sermon about inoculation. And I have a quote here. Extreme as he was, Massey represented the orthodox theological case against inoculation, that it negates the two spiritual functions of disease, divine punishment, and divine testing. So the fear of smallpox is therefore a happy restraint without Mm. which people would be less righteous. So similar argument to syphilis. Yeah, it's it's the same overarching argument. And what I've written here is I told you these people love their religion, but but it's honestly (laughs) like it's a it's a thing that's overarching for them. So yeah, there are lots of debates and attempts to control variolation. And in a certain sense, they aren't wrong. So the procedures aren't being carried out safely. There's always a risk of death or extreme symptoms depending on dosage. Like it's not, it's not a uniform dosage. Physicians are starting to carry out the practice more commonly, but they're never really doing it the same way. And they have all of these crazy diets. Like it's not just the inoculation. It's You'll be under the care of a physician. They will maybe prescribe you uh, like bread and milk for the next two weeks, and they might force all of your household to do it. They may or may not let you out. It's mm-hmm. the whole thing. People, when once they have been inoculated, they're contagious. Like they have perhaps milder symptoms, but they are contagious. So there's always going to be a risk, and uh, there's no way to police who's coming and going. So for example, like John and Abigail Adams, they have their whole family inoculated during the Boston smallpox epidemic of 1775 to 1782. And like they kind of continue to go about to go about their daily lives. Like I read about Abigail Adams continuing to go to church and we don't really know what the effects of that are. 
And to be fair, they might not have known if their physician hadn't yeah. told them. But like, they're not even an exception. Like, you, you just don't really know what people were doing with this practice. So like, they knew it worked. They knew it was better than dying from smallpox, but they weren't necessarily carrying it out safely or responsibly. So it's a bit of a risk versus reward discussion. And for example, the practice was banned in Philadelphia during the Revolutionary War because it was seen as such a risk, not just to the people, but to the army and the, and the effort to combat British troops. And um, there's this book that I use in my research called Pox Americana, uh, which is not always my favorite, but it's, it's making a lot of super interesting points because if you think about in North America, what you were talking about, like waiting for people to become sensitive as a community again, like waiting for the people who already had the disease and became immune to grow old and die uh, so that like a new fresh generation can be like ripe for the picking. That's like the population is far more sensitive, as you put it, in North America during the colonial mm -hmm. period versus these British troops who have been exposed to smallpox from a very young age in their community coming in and having this immunity to the disease. So they actually kind of have an advantage mm -hmm. over the local troops in, in the US and Canada. There's a whole issue of how maybe indigenous communities were faring during that time as well and how slaves were faring as well. Because like there's no evidence that they are particularly prone to smallpox or will have worse outcomes, but obviously African slaves are far less likely to have the proper nutrition and overall health to combat any sort of infection. So it's kind of yeah. Anyway. Yeah, they're like they're not more prone to it, but they're like being like slaves are being kept mm -hmm. in these like really, really close quarters where you're touching people and around people all the time. It's not like someone would be like, I have a ration of cough. May I please be excused? Like yeah. slaves. No. And so basically what would happen is that they were corralled into where they were living and then slave owners would sort of decide if it was worth it or not for them to get them inoculated or any kind of treatment. Like they would either say, tough it out and whoever lives lives. And, like, maybe if you were lucky, mm -hmm. you might be given something. And that was yeah, pretty and, much it. Uh, lucky, or if they decided that you posed enough of a risk potentially to the white population around you, maybe that's a more likely reason to inoculate the slaves. Yeah, and I think the crux of that issue being someone else is deciding yeah. who gets yep. treatment and what their yep. value yep. is. Yep. So back to England. Yep. <laughs> so now I'm going to talk about vaccination. Mm. So I don't think I really gave a proper definition of inoculation, but I think it might be a good idea to just really set that out right now. Inoculation is the use of biological material from a person who is currently suffering from smallpox. Or you can also do it with someone who has been inoculated, which is actually a little bit safer. So someone who's not directly from the source. Matter from a smallpox pustule being inserted into a cut on someone else's arm versus vaccination, which is using cowpox rather than smallpox for that same kind of procedure. Let's talk about cowpox. So vaccination comes from the Latin word for cow and cowpox is a disease, a, a virus really, that attacks the, um, the udders of the cow and that can be passed to humans handling the udders. So in this case, it's gonna be dairy maids. So in 1796, Edward Jenner found, finds a young dairy maid 
who has fresh cowpox lesions on her hands and arms, and he uses the matter from those lesions to uh, like intentionally infect or variolate or inoculate an eight-year-old boy. He's called James Phipps. He de develops a fever and other mild symptoms, um, and about nine days after he's inoculated, he's fine. He feels much, much better. And then, uh, so that's in May, and then in July... Jenner inoculates him again, but with smallpox lesion matter, and there's no disease that develops. So Jenner concludes that the procedure has worked, and that by inoculating the child with cowpox, the child is now immune to smallpox. I still have so many questions about what his parents Yeah, do you need, to, like, a permission but... slip, or do you just, like, sell the kid? <laughs> yeah, so Edward Jenner as a result of this experiment, um, ends up writing a paper and submitting it to the Royal Society, and they reject it. They're unimpressed, so he goes back and he tries to collect more data, do more experiments, tries to find volunteers and has, like, a really hard time, because nobody wants to be inoculated with cowpox, because, you know, it's kind of newfangled. And So over a period of years and years and years, he's trying to amass more data and try to gain more legitimacy. He is sending out samples of his vaccine to whoever requests it, like all over Europe. <laughs> yeah. And eventually he becomes famous for it because it's pretty groundbreaking. Um, it's a lot safer. It's a lot easier to accomplish. It's less risky. People aren't infectious while they're undergoing the procedure. Yeah, and the backlash against it is to be expected, and uh, like the same way that there was a religious backlash against inoculation as like subverting the natural order of things and like God's plan or what have you, uh, there's a lot of backlash against vaccination as well. And that backlash is pretty much immediate, so you could say that anti-vaxxing has existed since vaccination has existed. And there's this great engraving from around the time that vaccination was becoming a little bit more common. It's a caricature of people being vaccinated and they're literally turning into cows. Yeah. <laughs> you love to see the ongoing misconception about what getting a vaccine yep. can do to you. Great. Great. I mean, I can understand it when, when it's first been invented, because, like, how are you to know who this Edward Jenner is? His paper's been rejected by the Royal Society how many times now? He's giving out this treatment for free and hoping that people will, like, infect themselves with cowpox. So, actually, I kind of, I kind of get yeah. the lack of trust no, at that point. Fair. But now, yeah, like, now we have such a legacy of, of inoculation and vaccination that, I don't know, there should be more trust. Because it has been, it has been yeah. proven to a clinical standard to work. Yeah, I think, I think the bigger issue is with, like, how, A, how misinformation is spread. But also, because, like, what you could, you can always find someone that's a medical professional mm -hmm. that agrees with you, unfortunately. Yeah, and there's also mm -hmm. the issue of, like, deliberate infection. Like, particularly around this time, like, there's a really long tradition of people blaming each other for epidemic disease and like you see that with like pogroms during the time of the black death 
you see that in the period that I work on when I talked about like the disease of the black robes and the, um, the near extinction of the French Jesuits in the Huron missions. And like, that's quite a common fear and quite a common reaction. So I kind of get that this newfangled technology that has no evidence base quite yet, that includes an intentional infection, might not really appeal to people and they might prefer to stick with a more quote-unquote traditional kind of treatment and just kind of hope for the best and pray, pray like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but like, it's kind of interesting to see this unfolding in the 18th century, because I, I would say that the 18th century is the first time that like, you look at the texts that are being produced, you study the people who are involved and the society that they operate in. And it's recognizably modern. Like you can see yourself in what they're doing with a couple of <laughs> key differences. Do you want to tell me about today? So let's maintain this, va this vaccine conversation. I'm going to sort of switch around our order of operations here um, and talk about like where vaccines have basically gotten to in the modern day. So there are now four kinds of vaccines, right? There's a live vaccine or an attenuated vaccine where you're given a weakened form of the disease in order to create an immune response, which lets your body fight off a stronger form of the disease. And those are usually good for life. So measles, mumps, rubella, smallpox, those are attenuated vaccines. There are inactive vaccines, which give you a dead version of the disease. That can make them a less effective life cycle. And so you might need more than one dose in order to get the same immune response. And those vaccines are things like hepatitis A, rabies, polio. Then there's a whole category of subunit, recombinant, polysaccharide, or conjugate vaccines, which are also known as biosynthetic. And that basically means that scientists are creating substances similar to the virus that can be used to specifically target dangerous parts of it. And it can be used on immunocompromised people without actually exposing them to the virus itself. Um, they also have like, I don't know, there's a lot of categories within this and I'm not specifically sure where the categorizing lines are, but basically they've got a different, like a bunch of different kinds of vaccine in this category. So there are some that encode genetic material to identify a virus. So when the virus exposes itself in the body, the body produces the required immune response. That's like the HPV vaccine. There are also DNA vaccines and mRNA vaccines. And I don't have enough actual science to delve super deep into this, but basically your DNA stores your genetic code and mRNA or messenger RNA copies and transports genetic code. So the focus right now seems to be more on the mRNA vaccines. For example, there are a bunch of COVID vaccines that are being worked on that are mRNA. And then finally, there are toxoid vaccines, which basically inject you with a small amount of toxin to start an immune response. And that's like the tetanus or diphtheria vaccine. And I just feel like it's worth mentioning. This is also all related to the idea of a pox party, which I actually didn't know is what they were called, but that's <laughs> right. When like you actively expose your children to this disease in order to get it over with. Like chicken pox, super common, used to be common with measles. There used to be this misconception that like children, because they're like young and healthy, are more likely to bounce back. When of <laughs> course, it's actually much more dangerous. Um, but you can see how that might be related to this like live attenuated vaccine idea. 
but it's obviously way less controllable, way less regulated, and it can severely hurt people. But that's also like a big part of the anti-vax movement that you were just talking about. Uh, what, the, park, the pox party? Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. But people are doing this. They like won't vaccinate their kids and they'll take them to parties and they still think like COVID-19 parties are a good idea. It, what? I think it's, again, it's this idea of like being able to control it and thinking that like there's all these different components of vaccines that are going to make you, they're like, they're doing their own risk assessment the same way you were talking about people who were doing it in like the 1700s. But their risk assessment is like the potential for things that they think vaccines might cause, which for the record, they don't, mm-hmm. like autism versus getting the disease itself like which one's worse and I also the idea that living with autism is so much worse than your kid dying of a disease is really offensive but (laughs) or spreading that disease and or spreading that disease unwittingly and killing someone else's kid oh it's so irresponsible yeah wildly irresponsible not to mention with stuff like like measles measles is like so highly infectious and Mm -hmm. when you catch measles and survive it wipes out your immune memory so like everything you've ever been vaccinated against, everything you've ever had and survived, you're no longer immune to that. You start with like tabula rasa. Which is why the MMR vaccine is something required for every single kid to go to school and why people who aren't getting it are putting everyone at risk. Okay, Great. moving on. Anyway. All right. So let's go back to smallpox itself. So as I mentioned at the top, it is eradicated. We are done with it um and there i just wanted to share in terms of like actual stories as you know opposed to science that i'm not 100 percent familiar with um the last few cases of smallpox and i also thought this is going to be like a charming modern history thing they're actually really tragic so prepare yourself okay there are two last cases that i'm going to talk about let's talk quickly about the last naturally occurring case of smallpox. This happened in 1977 in Somalia. And so by naturally occurring, I basically, we mean what we're talking about now is like community spread, right? Like people are catching it from one another. So in 1977, October of 1977 in Somalia, a hospital cook named Ali Maumalan was diagnosed with smallpox. And one of the reasons that Somalia was like the last bastion of this disease was because it has a really large nomadic population. So it's hard to fully contain it because people are moving around. But after decades of like really aggressive contact tracing and like vaccination programs, they're getting really close to containing it. And a group from one of these nomadic populations was struck down with smallpox or a bunch of them. And this guy, Malin, basically was their transport. He went and got them and he got them in his truck and he drove them to the hospital that he worked at. Now, all hospital employees were supposed to have been vaccinated, but it seems like because he was afraid of needles, he managed to get out of it somehow. So he got sick from being in close contact with these people with smallpox. He wasn't successfully identified as one of the people who was in contact with the group of nomads, probably because they assumed he must have been vaccinated. So when he first got sick, everybody just thought it was malaria. And he didn't report himself because, as I will talk about later, the policy across most of Africa was um, forced isolation. So he knew he would be put into an isolation camp. He also knew the science. like He was careful to avoid people and not get too close to them. He didn't get anyone else sick. 
Um, but at the time in Somalia, they also had a pay for reporting system to encourage people to basically turn other people in who they thought were sick. So someone turned him in, got like 200 bucks and he was contained. He fully recovered. None of the people he was in contact with got sick. And that was officially the last case that was like naturally transmitted. But also, as a note, he just seems like a really good guy. He volunteered as a part of this really big task force in Somalia to help give polio vaccinations. And he's quoted as saying, Somalia was the last country to eliminate smallpox. I didn't want us to be the last country to eliminate polio, too. I know. He was like this super valuable local coordinator. So he started out as like a volunteer and ended up coordinating like tons and tons of people in each area, making sure that like all the vaccinations were delivered appropriately. He helped vaccinate hundreds of thousands of people. And for what it's worth, this is not an easy job in terms of logistics, but it's also not a safe job. Like parts of Somalia were slash still are really dangerous to travel around in. And these programs weren't always welcome. And people were really scared of taking the vaccine. And so he would go around sharing his story of getting sick because he was also scared. And then he used that to like help convince them and persuade them. And by the end of 2007, 2008, the campaign succeeded and there was no more polio in Somalia, which is amazing. Now, in 2013, the disease was reintroduced because we have not eliminated any other diseases besides smallpox. Um, and so he immediately just started traveling again back in his old role and then immediately contracted malaria and died. Oh, no. After all Which that. Which is just... That's horrible. So it's like a, such a cruel twist of fate. But he just seems like a really interesting and wonderful man. So He's a freaking inspiration. Yeah, completely. And then another super quick story, which again, it's, it's not cheerful. There was one other case... So the 1977 case is the last naturally occurring case, but there was actually one other death from smallpox and that was in 1978. And there is a young woman named Janet Parker who died of smallpox in Birmingham. And this is weird, right? Because it's been eradicated in Europe and North America for like a really long time. So she was a photographer at the medical school in Birmingham And originally, everybody thought that she had chicken pox, but as it got worse and worse, they realized what it was, even though they were like positive that they had eliminated it the year before. So immediately, everyone around her is vaccinated, put into quarantine because it's like a quite long incubation period, but people are panicking. Like the WHO comes in, doctors from everywhere, everyone's freaking out, wondering out how they'd gone from like being about to declare it eliminated and the last case in Somalia to this. So as it turned out, she was in part working in one of the few smallpox research laboratories and it somehow got out of its like containment and they think got into the vents and infected her. And the head of the laboratory knew how terrible this is. Like when they realized where it must have come from, the head of the lab, whose name was Professor Bedson, went home and killed himself. And then five days later... Janet died from smallpox. Oh, my God. And her parents were both quarantined because they would have been infected. Her dad died in quarantine from a heart attack because he was so stressed out and upset about his daughter's illness. Her mom got a very mild case of smallpox but survived. It was confirmed to have come from the lab, but they never performed an autopsy on her body out of fear of being contaminated themselves. So they never really figured out how 
it might have gone like through the vent systems. Maybe they were too old, something like that. Um, but they never really pinpointed it. They just knew generally like it came from there and she got ill. And that is the very tragic last death, three deaths, arguably, from smallpox. For the whole community, like that must have been intense. Yeah. Yeah. And like you think it's really something of the past because, yes, like they, it, it was around. People knew, but they also knew about this eradication effort and how like well it was going. So it must have been like really, really terrifying. So going back to all our vaccine types, the smallpox vaccine was slash is an attenuated vaccine, which is the live version of the virus. And I think you can tell that by thinking back to what Angel was just talking about from this like original method of just basically smearing pus on people. (laughs) Um, So because the vaccine is made with a live version of the virus, it has to be kept at like a certain temperature has to be stored appropriately. And that makes it really hard to transport effectively, especially at the end of the 19th century, right? So, of course, in industrialized countries, it could be transported quite quickly and safely. And they actually managed to diminish or in some places even eradicate this disease really early on through a concerted vaccination program. And that was largely around the 1930s that most of North America and Europe were like seeing really, really, really reduced rates, like feeling good about it. In 1950... A group of scientists in Indonesia developed a version of the vaccine that could actually be freeze-dried, which allowed it to be transported more easily. So some places, usually based on whose colony it was, could then access it and begin a more concerted vaccination campaign. So specifically, Indonesia got really good because the vaccine was developed there and some French colonies across Africa. The official World Health Organization campaign began in 1967. By then, a lot of Latin American, Asian, and African countries had managed to limit the spread. But the WHO was really worried about the fact that it was going to commit to this idea of, like, we're going to eliminate it, and they were just going to fail. Like, they, they didn't want to. They're like, there's too many rural communities. It's too big of an effort. We can't do it. We'll give you, like, $2 million a year. And I'm right, like that's nothing for the global containment of a disease. So the main contributor to the World Health Organization, the United States, proposed like a lot more money. And then the Soviet Union offered their full support and was like, we're with you. And it was this really interesting brokered deal between two very, very successful diplomats from each country. And that's especially crazy, right? Because you're at the like height of the Cold War and they are really at loggerheads with each other. And they came together to fund and coordinate this elimination effort. I think the bigger question is why did they end up choosing smallpox to eliminate through all this? Well, there's a lot of factors that I'm going to come back to that make it like the right disease choice to eliminate. One, it's super easy to identify. Symptoms are pretty much the same across the board. You see someone with those pustules and that rash and you're like, yeah, smallpox. Two, there was an effective vaccine. The vaccine was between like 80 and 100% effective. Like it's, it's really good. It works. But there's no treatment for it, right? So you can stop someone from getting sick with great ease, but if they get sick, 30% chance they're just going to die. All you can do really, even, even if someone were to come down with smallpox today, all you could do is really try to prevent secondary infection of the skin, right? Like that's pretty much it. Yep. That's, that's it. Yeah. So those reasons make it a really good target. 
there also is never going to be a reservoir of the disease. And a reservoir of the disease means like a place where it's sort of like living without you being able to get to it or know about it. And then it'll have a resurgence later based on like a circumstance. But because animals can't get it, if you manage to inoculate all humans and make sure that they're not going to get sick, then that's it. You're done. It's not hiding somewhere else. Yes. For example, uh, the plague bubonic plague would have as an animal reservoir rats and other rodents and sometimes even squirrels. Yes, exactly. And they had gotten to a point with vaccination technology where it was advanced enough that they could support this plan, right? They knew that they could develop and transport a high quality vaccine to really remote areas. So basically everything lined up and was like, this is the thing. Like we have a chance with this thing. WHO gets funding, countries start mandating the vaccine, the WHO starts providing them for free. In the US, smallpox is actually the disease where legislation got passed showing that compulsory vaccination can be legal under the constitution. And of course there was a lawsuit because of course people fought <laughs> it, <laughs> right? But like, that's the first time people said like, listen, we can make a vaccine mandatory. That's not an infringement on your right. Okay. So through all this, the Western world manages to essentially eradicate it first before anyone else through these vaccination campaigns. Developing countries are also conducting vaccination campaigns through the WHO, but they end up using something called a surveillance and containment process that wasn't seen elsewhere. And you thought I wasn't going to get to talk about racism and paternalism, but I am. We were texting about this earlier and I am like ready to dive into this because I don't actually know where I stand. So basically there isn't a lot of research that compares the different strategies that were undergone in the developing versus the developed world. And I think a lot of that is because, yes, it's a different environment, so you need a different strategy. That totally makes sense. I don't disagree with it. But I think my question is more why this happened that way in developing areas and not developed, right? It's not like there aren't rural populations in Europe and North America. And I just wish there was more literature on it because it does kind of seem like another round of, we know better than you, what's best for you? And like, yeah, obviously smallpox eradication is the best and this was a great job and this technique mm -hmm. has been lauded for, you know, the decades since and it obviously turned out really well, but I do kind of want to dive into this idea of like human dignity and self-determination. I guess I'm also thinking about um, the story of the last naturally occurring case and like the difference between the two things you're talking about, like forcibly vaccinating people versus empowering communities to vaccinate themselves if they want to using their own local resources and experience yeah. to promote this aim and like arguably nobody wants to get smallpox. I think my bigger problem is not the method because basically the strategy which was developed by this guy named Bill Foge I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, it worked really well, right? Surveillance and containment or surveillance and quarantine is legitimately what we're doing right now, right? Like it's effective. It works. It's mm -hmm. all like quarantining people has always been the best thing that you can do. I Recurring think my bigger, theme. exactly. <laughs> I think my bigger problem is sort of questioning, like, it just seems like it was uh, thrust upon a certain community of people yeah. Whereas others got like a right of self-determination and got to start like an anti-vaccination league. But there right? seems like they got to, to choose. There seems to be an assumption that like 
poor com poorer communities, more isolated communities, minority communities don't know any better, and there is no trust in their ability to understand these public health measures when actually it wouldn't be that hard to communicate, I don't think. If Yeah, and it seems like a lot, like, again, there's like a weirdly small amount of literature on this. Like, I had a lot of trouble with it. And I think a lot of work, this guy, Bill Fogue, I think like he went on to work at the CDC and do some really interesting things. And like it, from his recounting of it, it mostly seems like he was doing as much as he could in partnership with communities. I don't necessarily have an inherent issue with the strategies unless, you know, there were places where it was thrust upon people who were really disinterested. But I think my inherent, like, balking away from it is this idea that it had to be done differently with people who, you know you thought didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. They didn't know how to do what was best for them, but somebody else had already decided what was best for them. Yeah. Like, is getting smallpox vaccination objectively best for everyone? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Obviously. It is, but, but like, you know what you I mean? Like, that's sort of why. Like, you don't, it's the, it's the, like, eternal public health question. Like, you don't know better for other people except when you do, which I think is at, like, the crux of all yeah. of these conversations about public health measures because they do kind of... I mean, they, they totally circumvent people's autonomy, and that's the point. Yeah. Like, where do you draw the ethical line between what's better for the global community good and, like, the individual's mm -hmm. rights? Right? And, like, I'm anti-anti-vax, so I don't want to sit here and suggest that, like, if people don't want a vaccination, you shouldn't have to get one. Like, no, people die. You're killing people when you do that. Yeah. Sorry. Like, I believe, I believe in everyone's bodily autonomy, but, like, just get vaccinated. But then, of course, it feels like a very strange argument to be like, everyone should have the right to do whatever they want with their body, with the education mm -hmm. available to them, but also you have to do this one thing that's but not it's that. it's interesting <laughs> that you see such, vo such vocal anti-vaxxers from the same societies that are also trying to make these public health decisions for poorer communities. I don't think the main critique is that, like, the person that came up with this strategy was like being paternalistic and racist because I think overall everyone agreed this was a really effective strategy and everyone was mm -hmm. the better for it and there was really no lasting damage. And so that's a good thing. Um, but I think there's a lot of conversation to be had around, you know, how did we get to this point where somebody else got to make the decision? Anyway, everybody does it. Everybody gets vaccinated. It goes really great. And by 1980, we're done. <laughs> bye bye smallpox. Bye bye smallpox. Except in the labs. There are, what, like, three samples left? Yeah, so there are, like, two labs that are still doing some research on it. Yeah. Um, there is a stockpile of smallpox vaccinations in several places. Um, I believe the U.S. continually maintains enough smallpox vaccinations in order to inoculate our entire mm -hmm. population in case there is a, a terrorist attack. Um, there's some in Switzerland, stuff like that. And then people, I think, are, like, vaguely looking at cures but of course that's a bit tricky but like people do research to learn lessons from this experiment to prepare for bioterrorism but like overall we've generally just like moved on as yeah. a society so okay so going back to the idea of vaccinations i mean we never really left the idea of vaccinations <laughs> we're, still, we're still within the vaccinations um i just want to because it was eradicated in 1980 I'm going to bring it to an even more modern concept, which I think is on everyone's mind, which is COVID-19. So I feel like a lot of the terms that I just threw out around eradication are super familiar to all of us now, right? Like contact tracing, containment, quarantine, isolation. 
Like we're using all those right now. And it's because yes, we're using similar strategies and similar fights are being had and, you know, certain people have similar disadvantages, et cetera, et cetera. And one thing that I think it's important to say is that the process for making a good vaccine is really hard and really lengthy. Like if you want to be able to control the process so that people don't die while you're trying to prevent them from dying, a lot of time and scientific research has to go into it, right? Especially if you don't know that much about the actual virus. Like what if it adapts over time like the flu and you have to make a new one every year? We don't know enough about the antibodies that this produces. It seems like they don't live in the body and continue to create immunity for all that long. So, right, so like if immunity doesn't last that long, what do we do with that information when we're Mm -hmm. making vaccines? So as of right now, there are more than 165 vaccines being worked on for COVID. Some are in phase three, which is like human trials. And there are two that are tentatively approved for use. Although I'm pretty sure that's just that one in China that they've been secretly using since July. And one in Russia that like didn't even go through human trials. So it arguably could just be more dangerous. But to really know how effective a vaccine is, we have to wait like a long amount of time, right? You don't really know what the long-term side effects might be. So some of the vaccines are attenuated, right? Which is the active version of the virus. Some are inactive. I think the most interesting processes are the ones that they're working on that are messenger RNA. So when we're taking lessons from smallpox eradication, we're seeing you need really, really good testing and surveillance, and you have to be able to easily identify the disease. We're not doing so great at that. You need to have great surveillance so that you can easily identify outbreaks and where they're happening. We're also not doing so great at that. In the face of being able to treat the disease, which we couldn't with smallpox and we can't do with COVID either, the solution that was identified was vaccinating people. But we Mm -hmm. also don't have that. (laughs) And also we've got like a really big anti-vaccine movement, like people who won't even wear masks. So that doesn't really leave us looking somewhere positive. Anyway, we took some great (laughs) lessons, but I don't think they're helpful. (laughs) The end. <laughs> it's kind of funny because hearing you talk about why smallpox made such a good um, candidate for eradication, it's also partly the reason that I decided to study smallpox in my um, in my PhD. My criteria were the same as the WHO's. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, no, it's it's interesting from my point of view uh, to be observing what's going on even now with COVID because like I'm I'm seeing a lot of parallels with the smallpox things all the time, the way that we talk about it, the way it's about trust and fear and the emotional aspect of every single decision you make about COVID. So yeah, it's getting old, but it's not getting any less relevant. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it's, it's, you would think that with all these advances, with all this knowledge, with all this information available, you'd think that there would be more, not trust, but like recognition of what is good information mm-hmm. and instead it's just more but like, that's that's a problem we're always going to have and I think especially right now because we have so much information from so many sources it should be getting easier to figure out which ones are authentic and which ones are worth paying attention to but it's actually getting more difficult yeah 
just use a reliable news yeah. source. And if everything that agrees with you is being called an unreliable news source, it might not be a giant conspiracy. Or actually, story. maybe just read <laughs> many news sources with many different points of view. And ideally, maybe have a conversation about that. I would. I think that's a great recommendation. And like, don't make up your mind about anything. Normalize changing your mind. Although there are limits, because I used to have a coworker who told me that I should really be watching Russian state television <laughs> if I actually wanted a diverse understanding of the news. Oh my god! I was like, I don't really think that's true, but okay. Within limits, but I just guess. like realizing that, realizing that like there might not be an authority or an authoritative source, and that's kind of. If not fine, then just like the reality of the situation is that, yeah, something to and, like, recognize. Some th- sometimes it's just really difficult to know what to trust, and it's okay to acknowledge that. Like you don't always have to pretend to have an opinion. I'm with you. Well, give me, give me a hooray. Give me something good from this week. <laughs> I don't know if this is good per se. So I told you I was reading this book, Puma, by Anthony Burgess, and it's about, um, it's about a. I think it's like a comet or a meteor, some sort of satellite that's like due to hit the earth. Um, And it's like the end of the world, basically. I'm not very far in, but this morning I opened up the news and (laughs) I don't know if this is a joke or not. I just thought it was funny. (laughs) There's a comet that's like due to pass by the earth (laughs) on like the eve of the U.S. presidential presidential election. And I just laughed. It's like, wow. (laughs) Sci-fi is all coming true they predicted this they did except this book is set in the year 2000 i think that's all i have for you today (laughs) okay i'm gonna take it back to fermentation how about that go for it i made two new flavors of kombucha one was rose raspberry lemonade Mm. and it is so good regarding mary berry the rose was not too strong it was perfect it makes an amazing cocktail and then I also made a cucumber mint. And and does it taste like pickles? It does not taste like pickles. And it actually tastes like if I mixed it half with tonic and put a little gin in it, it would be the best G&T ever. Ooh. I really want to try it. And like, I don't know when I'm coming home I next. I don't know when I'm going. Well, these aren't hoorays These at aren't all. hoorays. It's, it's just, just kind of a downer. Oh my God. That's my other hooray. Oh, my new haul of cheeses. So good. Merry Wife of Bath. I've got a double <laughs> Gloucester. I've got my nice, like, oh, bright and blue. Mm. And I've got a Gruyere, and they're all amazing. All right, we're trying something new today. <laughs> <laughs> so for the first time, we're trying out a new tagline. We hope you like it. So without further ado, stay enraged. And stay engaged. I really like that. <laughs> I thought it was great. <laughs> Thank you for listening to In Sickness. Researched and hosted by Angeliki and Maya. Intro track and logo by Adrian Morningstar. Sound editing by Maya. <laughs>